0: From Madison, Wisconsin, in the United States of global hegemony, it's didactic syncast with your host, Eric P. So powerful. Now, not
1: only of it is. A few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety.
2: don't even know how to start right now. I mean, hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski. I am a writer and a teacher living in Wisconsin, USA. Uh, I go by the name Duke Scaff in the world of video games and Twitter. I'm known as Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is the 12th of November, 2016. It's four days after the election, and Donald Trump is the president-elect of the United States of America. That is a sentence I hoped I would never have to say. Not because he's a Republican, not because he believes in building a wall with Mexico, but because he is a person who time and time again has said atrocious things and done atrocious things that should have disqualified him in the minds of every American from serving in a state legislature, never mind being part of the national government, but being elected in any official policy uh, capacity. And it makes me so sad and angry that enough people voted for him That he now gets to be president. And uh, this show... Okay, look. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical, and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. This isn't a usual show. I've been collecting links. The last time I did a show, I think I just talked for a while. um, And that's kind of what's happening here. Although I have an interview. This is mostly an interview show. I'm not going to take up too much time here before we get to the interview. I talked this morning with a really good friend of mine that I haven't spoken to in like 20 years, uh, named Sophia Ali Khan, and she's amazing. And the discussion was wonderful. And I'm so happy that nothing technical went wrong because I was so worried I would lose some part of the discussion, but it's great and you're going to love it. And we'll get to it in just one second. Um, yeah, it's not a normal time. this can't be a normal show i I mean I'll get to the other links that I've been saving, but they all feel you know less important right now because we've got a terrible person who's about to become president, and I don't say terrible person lightly. I try to avoid generalizations about individuals and what's in their heart. One of the things we talked about with soph uh is that You know, we have to focus on what people say and do. So when I say Donald Trump is a terrible person, I don't mean deep in his soul he has no redemption possible. I don't know if that's true or not. It doesn't matter to me. Everything he's done or said has been so terrible that I need a shorthand. I can't keep saying we're about to have a president who's done a lot of horrible things and said a lot of horrible things. That takes too long. So please understand that I recognize the folly of saying somebody is terrible, But I don't know what else to say. So, please recognize that as my shorthand. So, the point is, you know, and look, there are a lot of things that he's done and said. I don't need to go into them because you know or you have access. You can find out all the horrible things he's done and said. If you've been paying attention at all over the last six months, never mind the last five years, you should know all the horrible things Donald Trump has said and done. And if you don't, do a Google search right now for the phrase, all the horrible things Donald Trump has done and said. I'm sure somebody has compiled a list of them. The two things that stand out, there's a number of things that stand out. Obviously, Sophia will mention in the discussion we talk about the fact that he has said we need to register all Muslims. That's a grievous violation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the U.S. Constitution, right? He has said we need to deport all illegal immigrants right now. That's a little tricky because there is a violation of the law there but you know I wrote about that recently and I'll post a link to the piece that I wrote called the uh, what conscience and, uh, yeah, here, let me find it. I'll give you the title. What conscience and honesty demands of all Americans. Um, so you can read that piece that I wrote and I talk about Melania Trump having worked in the United States without a work visa. So she was technically an illegal immigrant for a time and you know whatever, whatever it, it if we deport all the illegal immigrants right now, families are going to be torn apart and that's just terrible. So whatever. Um, those are two big things. Going after LGBTQ people, going after, you know, not even the the vigilante attacks that have been happening, which deserve their own attention, but then there's two other things that, that I think, again, should have disqualified him in the minds of every American from being president. Number one, a woman has accused him of raping her when she was 13. And that's an accusation, and everybody is innocent until proven guilty, but it's a really troubling accusation. And the only thing he said is, it never happened total false you know he did, i don't think he's ever actually addressed it. his lawyers have said you know this is slander this is you know vile the woman was about to go public and then she got like 20 death threats and she said i can't risk it so uh, that's a really troubling situation right just as we are right to you know when bill clinton was running for office people were right to say look he sexually harassed this person he's been accused of this sexual uh, assault we should take donald trump's sexual assault seriously and and deal with them and we haven't so that's one thing and then the other thing was joe scarborough a commentator on msnbc he's the comment he's the conservative guy on msnbc in the same way that you know alan combs for a while was the liberal guy on fox news anyway joe scarborough tells the story about uh national security advisors who he's spoken to who were in a meeting with Donald Trump and they said that in the course of like a 2-hour meeting Donald Trump asked three times if we have nuclear weapons why can't we use them I don't want that person to have access to our nuclear launch codes period end of discussion again for me that should you know and here's the crazy thing I when I bought my cell phone recently uh, the guy who sold it to me was really nice, and we were talking about things, and he's a writer, and, or aspiring writer, and I, I talked about teaching writing, and all the writing I've done, and we had a really good conversation. So when I went back to that same store recently, I saw him, and I was like, hey, how you been? What's going on, and all this? And, and he was like, you've been writing? And I was like, yeah, mostly about this crazy election, and the psychopath is about to get into office, and he said, would you rather have had the other psychopath?" And I didn't know what to say because, again, my response should have been, no, 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 no. We had one psychopath running for office and one corrupt career politician. If you want to be mean about it, yeah, okay. She was careless with her emails. And by the way, I hope that every American right now will say, Donald Trump doesn't get to have a private email server. Let's make every email he sends and receives Public domain, publish it on a website, Donald Trump, because if his whole thing is you have to be transparent with your emails, then dag nabbit, that applies to you too, Mr. Trump, right? I mean, can we all get behind that, please? Can, let's just use that as a starting point. Surely there's common ground for emails in the executive branch need to be open. So whatever, anyway, I mean, not that he's going to be hiding things because, you know, he'll, as long as we have access to his Twitter feed, I suppose, we'll see everything he's thinking and feeling at all times, but we don't, that's the point, being president means you have walls around you, anyway, I'm getting off track, I don't even know what the track is, except I have to get to this interview very soon, Um, I'm demoralized, I'm frustrated, I'm sad. But I also have kind of a renewed sense of purpose. Let me tell you a quick story. When I was a grad student at the University of Florida in Gainesville, there was this anti-abortion protest one time. And they had these enormous pictures of aborted fetuses. And it was this you know, attempt to shock and awe people and shame people into never, ever supporting abortion rights. And around that protest, there was this sort of garden of counter-protests and people who had information about what your rights are as women. And, and and here's why Roe v. Wade was so important. Here's what it was like when abortion was illegal and all this other stuff. And there were all these sort of ancillary discussions happening around it. A lot of yelling, of course, but I'm never interested in... I was just going to say I'm not interested in yelling. Can you believe I almost said that word, the, That sentence? That sentence almost came out of my mouth. I'm not interested in yelling. Laugh! That's all you do is yell, Mr. P. I know, I know, I know. Maybe I should work on that. Maybe I should yell a little less. (sighs) But then there's that quote from Frederick Douglass about what we need now is not light, but, you know, thunder. The point is, at this counter-protest, there were people talking about, you know, how laws come about and what the role of popular struggle is and all that. And this one guy, I, I wish I remembered more about him, but he was just... You know, he was a little younger than me, I think. And, and he was on this whole thing about, like, well, protest just doesn't do anything. There's no point. And I, I let loose. I just started screaming at him. You, you're you just wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. And and this was right after I had come, either right before, no, it was, I think it was after East Timor had had their vote for independence. And I, I let loose, and I just, I was lecturing him at a very high volume about the the way in which popular struggle forced the U.S. government to confront the question of East Timor and forced the Indonesian government to consider the possibility of letting East Timor vote and had forced um, media to cover East Timor a little tiny bit and had forced uh, the United Nations to, you know, f- deal with East Timor a little more. And, and eventually, of course, East Timor became independent. And and he was like, whatever, dude. And he, he went away. And then I realized, okay, I don't need to yell at him anymore. But there were all these people standing around listening and looking at me. And I was like, I don't know what to do right now. Because <laughs> I don't want to yell at people who might not be disagreeing with me and they might actually want to hear more of what I have to say and I wasn't used to that and I'm still not really used to being in that space where suddenly people are like go on because usually people don't say to me go on they say to me oh I have a headache can you please not yell at me right now <laughs> So, you know, again, as always, the fact that people subscribe to this podcast is always just startling to me. Like you voluntarily choose to listen to me just talking? Okay, thank you. I really appreciate that. I hope it's useful. But but in that moment, I recognize like this is why I've been preparing for so many years to talk to people. Cuz eventually you will have someone who is willing to listen. And if you don't have something to say in that moment, you're lost. And I don't want you to be lost. You need to be ready to communicate in that moment. And the only other. So that's happening now. A a lot of students are coming to me saying, like, what do we do? What do we do? And I come in. Well, let's start with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Shall we? We can get to the U.S. Constitution in a moment. Um, So there's that. Uh, And I'm so humbled and honored and grateful that I have established myself as someone of some kind of credibility such that students and former students feel, A, safe enough to come talk to me and, B, interested in what I have to say uh, with regard to all of the meshegas that is happening right now in the United States of America. Um, and the only other time I can think of is Coney 2012. Because when the Coney 2012 thing hit, for the first time in my teaching career, I had students saying... Uh, Mr. P, what's going on in Central Africa? And I never forget the first student who came to me. I was like, what? What makes you ask? And she was like, well, Kony 2012. And I was like, I've never heard of that. So I watched the video, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It It was one of those moments where like, you know, people started to pay attention to something outside their little bubble. And that was so nice. And and hopefully this is another moment, which for horrible, horrible reasons, it's causing some people to pay attention to something going on outside their bubble. And that's great. That's a good thing empirically, the fact that they're looking outside the bubble. Um, and then I should add that one time when I was doing a long-term sub job in Poinet, which is a community close to here, uh, we lost a student because of a car accident. And I mean, that was devastating because we all knew him. We had been laughing and having fun with him the day before, and then suddenly that chair is empty, and we were all just c- crying and sad and pained. And, 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 you know, I do 10 minutes of journal writing at the start of class every day. And in Poinet especially, for whatever reason, it was hard to get kids to keep writing for the full 10 minutes. But let me tell you something, that day and when we when we found out that he was dead, I didn't have to tell them to keep writing. And in fact, when the 10 minutes was up, I was like, okay, that's 10 minutes, people. They said, shut up. We want to keep writing. And I was like, yes, keep writing. So we wrote for another 10 minutes and then we talked. And it was, I mean, that was a, that was a cathartic day. That was a day when the power of writing was shown and proven to them to have value. And I wish it hadn't had to come because of the loss of one of their friends. But unfortunately, sometimes that's what it takes. So- Again, you know, I'm not a silver lining kind of guy. I am a – the glass isn't half full or half empty. The glass is totally empty because the atoms consist mostly of, like, empty space, man. So, like, whatever. (laughs) I'm going to beg the question every time. But my point is this. Look, if nothing else, what we need to do right now is organize and fight and build community and love each other and make good art and take to the streets in peaceful protest and make it clear that we are not okay with what's happening in this country, make clear that we will not accept violations to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, to violations to the U.S. Constitution, and violations to human decency. And if you are willing to accept those three principles— we, we, we will not accept violations to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We will not accept violations to the U.S. Constitution. We will not accept violations to human decency. If you are willing to accept those three principles, then we will stand together. I will stand with you. And we can quibble about you know how the U.S. Constitution should be interpreted. That's what the Supreme Court does all day, every day. That's what every citizen needs to do all the time. We can talk about how the Universal Declaration of Human Rights applies to police use of force. But we can't ignore that those are our foundational starting points. And the human decency thing, again, there's a lot of ways to interpret that phrase. But you know what? If you're not willing to make that commitment, I will not work with you. And you are on the other side of the barricades from me. And I love my enemy as much as I can. But I'm going to fight for human decency, for the U.S. Constitution, and for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I hope you will too. Okay, let's get to the interview. Um, I interview. I introduce her in the conversation that we had, so I don't need to say anything else. Uh, Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Please, as always, get in touch. Uh, I am on Twitter, at Scath. I am on Facebook. I am on, um, yeah, you can email me, esp at fbesp.org. I just wrote a new book called Mind Wipe, Dealing with Stress, Anger, and Ego. Uh, It's available for like five bucks at your local bookstore, or you can order it online, um, just-text.org. Just text.org is the website. You can find out more information about the books I've written. Um, yeah, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, I will do another show as soon as I can. Enjoy the interview.
3: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to here. Way in
2: man. Hello, I am here with Sophia Ali Khan, who was a friend of mine back in the day at New College, and um, she's only become more awesome since then. Uh, we got to know each other through activist circles, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, today, she is a public interest lawyer and writer. Uh, she's worked for an attorney for the Community Legal Services of Philadelphia, Prairie State Legal Services in Illinois, and the American Bar Association. She has practiced in the areas of welfare law, Medicaid access, immigrant access, to public benefits, immigration, zoning and licensing, and language access under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. She is a national leader in the area of developing institutional capacity for provision of language access. She developed and wrote the grant that funded the American Bar Association's Standards for Language Access in Courts. Uh, She is the author of a now viral Facebook post, Letter to Non-Muslim Allies, which is the starting point for her blog, where she continues to address non-Muslim allies and answer the earnest questions of would-be allies. Um, As you can imagine, in the last week, that work has become even more urgent. Um, And um, Sophia holds a J.D. from Northeastern University School of Law, a B.A. in Social Sciences and Gender Studies from New College of Florida. She's a second-generation Pakistani-American. She was born and raised in the United States and now lives with her family in Pennsylvania. She would like you to vote against hate in every election. So, Sophia, uh, welcome to the Didactic Syncast.
1: Thanks, Eric.
2: I've missed you. I've missed you a lot as well. <laughs> so as I said, you know, we met in New College. I got to New College in 1993. We're, what year did you start?
1: 92.
2: Um, you started in 90, Okay, that's what I thought. You were a little ahead of me. So, um, yeah. What just, In just terms of activism, because one of the things that I like to talk about in this show is like how activism has become part of my life and how I combine living as a human being with trying to do things to make life a little less atrocious and make the world better when possible. And I think a lot of people th- see activism as this thing over here, you know, and there's, like, people who are, you know, there's Noam Chomsky, and then there's everybody else who sits on the couch and watches TV. And and I think I, we can do both. So anyway, how did you first start getting involved in, like, activism?
1: Well, I think I was actually just... Born with an overdeveloped sense of empathy okay. is what happened. And uh, maybe that's not entirely true. I mean, I grew up in a really white, mostly working class area. Mm-hmm. And I was one of maybe three or four people of color in my school. Right. And maybe, I, I think, besides my brother, I was the only Muslim right. in the school district until about 11th grade. I think I met one other person in 11th yeah. grade. But, you know, I think when you're, I think when you feel marginalized or you feel like an outsider yourself, you sometimes develop the capacity to look around for other outsiders right. and build alliances. And I think I think when you, you're you looking around in the margins, you see that there are, there are particular reasons why people are placed in the margins right. that have to do with institutionalized racism or sexism or um, you know discrimination against folks with disabilities you find people for whom those things aren't just words they're real lived experiences and so you start to develop a little bit of heart around those real lived experiences of all your friends and so i think that started really early for me um just as a as a human being um seeing those things started early and i think sort of the the prerequisite for activism isn't so much um, the willingness to turn off the television although that helps <laughs> so much as just being able to see right. other people's experiences and you know, it's sort of like the ring around the bathtub if you never have to clean the bathtub you, you can get away with not seeing the ring right. you know? <laughs> but, right. but if you have to if those are your friends, if those are your relatives you see it Right. Um, so, but my family was not a politically active family or an activist family. I'm from a family of first generation Pakistani immigrants who moved here specifically to avoid political volatility <laughs> and sectarian violence.
2: Well, they picked the wrong uh, time.
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but but they had they had fifty good years. Oh, <laughs> sure, sure. And I, I would imagine you know what
2: they were experiencing in Pakistan was a, a sure sight different from what they had in the united states
1: yeah well i mean it's actually not not as different as one would imagine um i think i think this sort of we can just jump right in here i mean i think this sort of divisiveness in society is exactly is exactly what begins um what can begin if, if sort of unchecked um a fracturing, a sort of volatility in society, and an invitation to violence in society—that's that can be fairly destructive, fairly quickly. Sure. Um, of course, our our nation's history is a lot, lot longer and a lot different than Pakistan's history. But mm-hmm. I think um, part of what's problematic, I think, in the place that we find ourselves is the real the real palpable degradation of um, political rhetoric right. and also what it means to hold certain offices in sure. in our in, at our highest levels of government.
2: And it seems also that, I mean, you know, America has always, or certainly in the last century, I'd say I can't speak for anything before that, but it seems like the American people have become or have always been profoundly ahistorical and unwilling to confront questions of history. And it seems like... The arrival of Donald Trump on the political scene to anybody who's spent 10 minutes looking at history should be a non starter. But yeah, I mean,
1: even in recent history, the sort of rhetoric that he won on, right? Right. What passed for his political platform, although I mean, you have to extend politics to mean a politics of hate, right? Right. Right. (laughs) I mean, that language, until very recently, was something that would make you unviable as right. a candidate in any party right. um, in this country. And I think that, that that's what, I think one of the things that we need to take back, take a step back and look at right. um, on both sides. Right, right is that right. we have somehow extended the the sphere of acceptable political rhetoric to include outright sexism, outright xenophobia outright racism um and and that's you know we really have some soul-searching to do i think on both sides both the republicans and the democrats and the progressives and the far right conservatives have a lot of soul-searching to do about why we have decided as a country that that is acceptable, right,
2: and I definitely want to talk about all that i I, I know we're going to be bouncing back and forth between the yeah. present and the past um so okay, you got to new college. Um, did your attitudes towards things change a lot when you got to new college? I know mine did, but I know mine experience isn't everybody's experience
1: so I think I mean i they did shift I think my my activism started in high school with more um, more more local things right? right, so I worked on a suicide prevention hotline and mm. I and I did some environmental activism. These were things that were really sort of obvious to me and close to home, and and I think they were available to me because I really didn't have alliances with other people of color. And so while I could see some of those issues, I really couldn't – there wasn't a collective voice really – or even a community where I could sort of develop those ideas or those – those sort of lived feelings or experiences into something articulated into some sort of witness to what what happened over and over again um, to people of color in this country and in, in my community.
0: Sure. It's, so funny we, you,
2: sorry, it's funny you we, mentioned environmental activism. I, I wasn't really involved in any actual, you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I volunteered a homeless shelter, I think, once or twice in high school. Um, but because I talked about, hey, people, the planet's becoming unlivable and we might want to live on it for a few more years, that meant that in the yearbook, the year I graduated, I was voted, you know, they do the senior superlatives, most likely to succeed and all that. They had a category for one year that said most environmental, and I won <laughs> along with it some
1: much when you're It 16. totally did. The woman who, the, the young lady
2: who was, you know, they had a guy and a gal for each, and and the young lady who won it, from what I could tell, she won because she wore sandals sometimes. Like,
1: that, <laughs> that was literally
2: all it took, so it, it yeah, was... Yeah,
1: no, I mean, I think we set up recycling containers in the, right. in the school lunchroom.
2: Exactly, and like, that. for me, a lot of the early part, you know, my political consciousness largely came through two sources. I read a book about um, animal rights, Uh, And that set me off on this, you know, I was like, oh my god, what's happening? How does the food get from the farm to my table? And then I realized, oh wait, what farm? Uh, And then that, of course, set me off. Wait a minute, if I don't know the truth about how my food gets to me, what else am I not knowing about? And that, you know, one thing led to another, of course. But then the other thing was, you know, rap music, and there was an industrial uh, group called Consolidated. And, you know, music was, as Ice-T said, a home invasion. Like, it was a way for, you know, Chuck D said, rap music is the CNN of Young America. And it really was for me. Like, I I got access to so many, you know, there was a fold out in one of Paris's albums that had like all this information about Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and all the rest of it. So that was a way for me to get that consciousness in a way that wasn't direct. In other words, you know, I didn't have a lot of people of color as friends in high school, because they didn't really go to my school and whatever. But, but it was, I was sort of heightened in my awareness of the fact that things were so screwed up, but I was the only one. And so it was very strange. But then when I got to new college, I found other people who were sort of like me, so.
1: Right, right. But New College in itself is a bit of a bubble, right? It was mm-hmm. actually fairly tiny for a college. Right, and that's why so I think not activists... not like you could join anything. You right. just had to go do stuff. Exactly. That's why <laughs> activists, I think,
2: tend to find each other yeah. quickly at New College and say, okay, what are we mm-hmm. doing about all this stuff that's so messed up?
1: Right, and, and so my activism there, and it's interesting what you say about music, because folk music did that for me okay. at New College. Okay, okay. Um, so, my parents were immigrants that came with two suitcases, and they didn't really come with any music. So, mm. I really didn't, and they didn't connect to music here. Huh. So, I didn't grow up with music. Huh. Um, and so, getting to New College and being surrounded by people, you know, long-haired hippies with guitars.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Was like, I mean, it was a complete, complete awakening, you know. Sure. so my a lot of my political um, history came through songs by Woody Guthrie. Interesting. You know, and... Pete Seeger and, uh, you know, Joni Mitchell, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like that sort of um, political consciousness. I guess Joni Mitchell would have been more consciousness than history. But, you know, um, even Annie DeFranco caring mm-hmm. for sort of the, the history, the sort of putting political history in her songs. Right. Putting union history in her songs. Those were things that I really wasn't exposed to. Mm-hmm. And, frankly, most of our new college, you know, our new college peers were not exposed to. But through songs... I mean, I learned a lot more from folk songs at New College than I did in the classroom. I'll sure, you that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um About political history anyway, because I right. wasn't, I wasn't a, I found it really difficult to read political history for some reason.
2: Yeah. Well, it's also dry and like separated from our lives.
1: Right, right. So. This felt real. Right. Uh, um, so, I mean, and then at New College, I mean, I think in some ways it's sort of phase two of this, this really limited activism that we did in, in high school, right? We were right. pretty sheltered. We were a pretty small campus. We weren't, I don't think, very well integrated with the community around us at all. No. Um, but I think addressing things that were right, I think I learned activism by dealing with things that were right in front of us, right? Mm. So we, I think you and I both did the Clothesline Project. Oh, yeah. I started that, that Clothesline Project where we put up, you know, women who had experienced assault or violence.
2: Sorry, for those who don't know, um, listeners who aren't familiar, just explain quickly what the <laughs> Clothesline Project is.
1: Sure, it's a, so it's, this, um, it's a visual arts display of, that's, that's meant to educate and bring awareness to issues of violence against women. So the idea is, the broader idea is, that violence against women is generally private, right? It's right. sexual violence, it happens in families, it happens in relationships. Um, or it happens in a sexual context that's that's privatized. Um, so so a lot of those stories don't ever make it out into the public space, um, and and those stories generally stay private because a lot of a lot of sort of there are a lot of institutional barriers, you know, in terms of uh, police responsiveness, testing of rape kits, all kinds of uh, there are all kinds of institutional barriers to both reporting and prosecuting. Violence against women, right. and so, um, and so this stuff stays stays in women's private lives. And so the idea behind the clothesline project is that you take this um, this signifier of private life of women's private life, the clothesline, and you turn it into a public art display. So women were, and men actually were invited to um, create, in this case, t-shirts uh, with some representation of the violence that they had experienced on it. And then that clothesline was strung in our case in the middle of, in the middle of our uh, residential area of campus, right? So right. we had a bunch of palm trees. Called and palm I should Sorry, Court. I should
2: say, just for the sake of those who haven't had the chance to visit New College, <clears throat> the, the area is called Palm Court, and it is a place of jubilance and energy and partying <laughs> and conversation. But when the clothesline project went up, it was silent and there was a powerful impact that nothing else I think could have had.
1: Yeah, I mean I have to say I think the Clothesline Project was probably my proudest moment at New yeah. College. Yeah. I really, I felt like that sort of silent visual display stopped the conversation for long enough for people to listen. Sure. In a way that I really, and that, it's really actually interesting be having this conversation now, because there's a lot of chatter right now. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a place for for visual protest and visual arts. I mean, I'm not talking about like the, the graffiti that we're seeing, but I, right. I'm talking about sort of thoughtful
2: mm-hmm.
1: visual protest i think visual sort of arts protest right it seems
2: it seems to me that the clothesline project has the capacity i mean because in its essence it's just sort mm-hmm. of you know in, in its basic formulation one person telling their story without the the uh, attempt to say like well here's what i need the law to do or here's what i need this to do here's what I i'm just here's how i'm feeling about all this here's how right. it's affected me right right and there right. as a result a viewer has the responsibility and the opportunity if he or she seeks to access it the the chance to say you know okay could this be someone i know um have i ever participated in something like this um obviously this happened to someone near me and in what way can i help to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen to other people And I think that sort of powerful, reflective possibility, although it's probably minimal, you know, there's a good chance that if 100 people went through that project, that thought process I just described may have happened in 10 of them.
1: Right, but I I think there's actually, I think 10 is better. Oh, yeah is better than you get coming out of most political conversations where the, the participants are diametrically opposed right. or don't see each other right. going into the conversation, right. Right? right? So what's really interesting to me about that is that what you're describing is the viewer not actually having to confront the speaker, right? Right. right. So the person who's presenting, there's no confrontation there. There's no, there's no um, nobody feels... Trapped by the discomfort of the situation, nobody feels trapped by what the their response is supposed to be. Right, social niceties and, and like Knowing what their response is supposed to be, they get to sort of take the information in, in in a sort of um, in a limited way. Right, right. It's it, they're not going to be trapped there forever. They get to go at their own pace, and they get to incorporate that information on their own terms. So they get to reject what they want of it and take in what they can of it without that having to directly affect another human being in that moment. And I think it's actually a really compassionate way to have conversations about difficult issues.
2: So let me put, sorry, let me put on my radical hat for a second now and say, yeah, but you know what, that scumbag male <laughs> supremacist is going to see the clothes on and just walk the other way, and we need a way to grab him by the shirt and say, hey, dude, I'm trying not to curse in this podcast, uh, you need to deal with this man. Yeah, so where do you
1: think that gets us? <laughs> <laughs> I don't care where
2: it gets us. He needs to feel the rage, and then maybe right, he'll right, stay right. away from hurting women, or he'll get his junk cut off.
1: Right, and, and so you landed irredeemable.
0: <laughs> right.
1: You landed a place where, where the outrage, the rage, right. um, and the denial are, are just far too elevated. And justify their, his I mean, sense of well it's
2: a good thing I didn't go over there because look at how these people are interacting with me
1: right, right I mean, well, I'm never going to do that again right right <laughs> right but then
2: the, so um, I'm, I'm sorry again, this I feel like it connects exactly to what's going on right now because so many people are so mad about the Trump election and my whole thing is always, you know, as a teacher, my whole thing is like, look, we can talk about anything, you know, let's talk about it. If if you want to put a thesis forward, I have an antithesis ready to go and we can find a synthesis. But, you know, especially on like Twitter and, and sometimes on Facebook, people seem to have the attitude that like, well, why should I be logical and rational when dealing with fascists?
1: Hey, you teach English, right? I do. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Yeah. just putting the oh, yeah. pieces together. Oh, yeah. So you've been teaching English for for how long now?
2: 16 years. Wow. Yeah.
1: That's amazing.
2: Yeah. And what, uh, what grade do you teach? I teach mostly 11th and 12th right now. I have a few 10th graders. But, yeah. you know, I did sub-jobs here and there, different levels. I taught for a year, 8th grade, when I was still in Gainesville, Florida, before I moved up here to Madison, Wisconsin. And um, for one, when I was doing day-long sub-jobs, I once did a kindergarten music teacher sub job and you know i think it takes a long time to figure out what your true calling is you have to try a lot of different things but i can tell you for sure that my true calling is not being a kindergarten music teacher (laughs) because those kids don't understand simple commands like hey 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 they just kept running around and so anyway um yeah so, so the question of rage, I think, is something we can definitely come back to, and obviously we will. Um, okay, so we did the on Project. We did other things at New College. You graduated in, what, would it be 96? hmm Okay, that's and true. then went where and did what? Because that's the last I kind of talked to you.
1: Yeah, I went, I disappeared for a little while because I moved to Little Rock, Arkansas.
2: Because?
1: Um, because I took a job with... Um, with an organization called acorn
2: okay yeah yeah. the, the horrible community... people who
1: trapped
2: uh probably help prostitutes break the law right
1: yeah i don't know i've been out of the acorn loop for a little while i'll tell you what happened was that they were doing um they were doing uh, you know sort of baseline community organizing around all sorts of things yeah. in little rock arkansas including um political mobilization uh, for, you know, local office, getting folks from, especially African-American communities, poor African-American communities to run for public office. They were dealing with issues of housing discrimination. Um, They were uh, opposing, uh, you know, lack of responsiveness by the township or the local authorities to living conditions, problematic living conditions. They were doing all sorts of good work. The problem was that they were, really really horrible to work with <laughs> yeah that's
2: what i've heard like 90 so hour really they were, work really,
1: they, were the, they were those folks who, who paid community organizers you know twelve twelve thousand dollars a year yeah um to work 80 hours a week so they have right. they have some internal issues sure. um and bless them i appreciate the the sort of motivation behind the work that they do but they have some they have some internal issues to work out which i discovered fairly quickly yeah. in my time there so i ended up leaving to go work at a place called the women's project okay which I have all kinds of great things to say about this. The, the Women's Project was founded by a woman named Suzanne Farr, who still works, I think she works for Southerners on New Ground now, based in Atlanta, really fantastic racial and social justice organization in the South. Um, and the Women's Project was really interesting in that it, did, it was this oasis in Arkansas for people on the margins. Was, right. You know, it was where women came to feel safe. It was where mm. people of color and uh, people who identified as LGBTQ came to feel safe. It had a library. It was amazing. But a <laughs> really incredible thing about it is that every single person who worked there, from the executive director to the woman who cleaned the office, made exactly the same paraded wage. mm so there's this real commitment to, you know, if these this is the limitation of our resources to do this work, um, then we have to share in that, yeah. right? We have to share in that limitation, and that's our dedication to do this work together. And then we'll reward seniority with things like paid sabbaticals,
0: mm.
1: you know? So six-month paid sabbaticals. We'll pay you with time. For so many years. Yeah. Right. So they pay you, they reward seniority and loyalty with, with a certain amount of Return loyalty, right? Yeah. Like we, we trust that you will go and use this sabbatical to re-energize, to come back and do this great work. Sure. Right? Um, it's really just a lesson. And it was a level of sort of respect and solidarity from much older female activists that I needed at that moment in my right. life. It was, it was a way of being seen as an activist.
2: It's interesting you say, I'm sorry to cut in, but, you know, the, the thing you said about ACORN, I hear there there's so many examples I've heard in the last 20 years of people, friends of mine, loved ones who have worked for, organ, you know, political organizations and not been treated well as workers within those organizations. And it's led me to this mantra of like, we need a revolution on the way to the revolution. You know, Ralph right. Nader once busted a union at his organization, and it just seems like that is the height of hypocrisy to say... Oh, God,
1: I, I hate to keep dragging you back to what's going on today, but no, I have to No, please, you, that's going to be the nature is of this exactly, conversation. exactly... That is exactly... A revolution within the revolution, that is exactly what I feel like we need in American politics in this moment, because yeah. I feel like what I'm seeing in the chatter between just before the election and just after the election is this extreme normalization of Donald Trump in all of his xenophobic and racist glory as a legitimate political figure. Yeah. Right? And I get that you need a peaceful transition of power, but when you normalize xenophobia and racism and sexism and misogyny, those things have consequences. So I'm I'm, you know, standing squarely in the position that we cannot normalize we can't turn away from his behaviors we can't i've had trump supporters and and hillary supporters and bernie supporters in the wake of the election all say to me well let's not be extreme he might not actually turn out to be that bad <laughs> you know that's not why i elected him he's not really a racist i've heard all of this over and over and over again yeah. in a loop and you know I keep thinking of that Maya Angelou quote, you know, that you when somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Right. I feel like, you know, as a parent and as a person of color, I don't have the luxury mm-hmm. of pretending he didn't say and do those things.
2: Because the first right. act might be to deport your family.
1: Right. I mean, well, register us. Right. Or oh, it'll start with registration. Mosque exactly. or right. block. M- block my kid's grandma from coming in or block us from coming in and out.
2: Now, sorry, to I be fair, know. to be fair, it would probably not be surveillance of the mosque. It would be, let's increase the surveillance of the mosque.
1: Right. Well, I mean, we're outside of New York City, so, right, so I right. don't know how much surveillance oh, they're Oh, you got to watch them everywhere, man. The resources are probably pretty limited, but, yeah. but yeah, I mean, surve- they were talking about surveilling neighborhoods during the campaign. I think right. that was uh, Ted Cruz yeah. talking about that, but... The political rhetoric has gotten to a place where those things are seen as acceptable. There is no big, loud voice saying, hey, you know what? Those are due process violations, civil rights violations, constitutional violations. Universal Declaration of
2: Human Rights violations. Violations,
1: Violations. yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, um, when you don't have a strong public voice continuing to say, this is a guy who campaigned and won on racism and sexism and xenophobia. And those things aren't buzzwords to me. Right. Those things are like, I need to be clear that if this man keeps his campaign promises, it will no longer be safe for my family to travel. Right. It will no longer be safe for, you know, um, for me to go to the mosque and not be entrapped.
2: And as right. we're already seeing, it's not safe for Muslim Americans to wear a hijab, for instance, or...
1: Right, right, right. I mean, there's there's all kind of fallout. So, so I'm just talking about like let's take the man at his word. Right. This isn't even touching what happens. I mean, this is a guy who was endorsed by the KKK, right? Yeah. So, and people again hear the word K, the phrase KKK, and they hear it as a. I mean, on the Trump side, hear it as a buzzword. Like, right. don't be alarmist. Yeah. Right. Don't be alarmist, but but we have to go back to real history. I mean, we have to be real about this. This is a hundred-year-old institution in American society that is known to have infiltrated and influenced police forces,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. governors' offices, Mm -hmm. local held local office, right? Held, you know, these were the prison wardens. These were judges. These folks infiltrated and ran society at every official level at one time in this country. Sure.
2: And they're t- they're currently classified as a terrorist organization by the United States government.
1: They are, yeah. Well, I, I know as a hate organization, certainly by many, many NGOs that are I could
2: be wrong about that. Let me hate, look it up.
1: ...hate organizations. So, you know, you look at this and you say, this guy ran with an endorsement from a terrorist-slash-hate organization, and he won. Right. So what does that mean about... What does that mean about what's acceptable to Trump-supporting Americans? Right. What is what is the significance of that? What is, what is what is the hope that America will be right. if that is the case? Sorry, right? for the record, um, I, I, I was
2: wrong. The Klan is not designated as a terrorist organization in the United States. So.
1: But certainly, as a hate organization, yeah. for one, by the Southern Poverty Law Center, really renowned and established right. uh, civil and rights group.
2: And by any measure, everything they've ever done qualifies as terrorism. So right. I'm not well, terrorism shy about you. It
1: was that not term. the buzzword then that it is today. Right. Right. At the right. height of the, of the course. Klan. Yeah. So but I think you're right. And and if you look at sort of what, what the Klan has done historically, what they've done is they have done what we condemn so called Muslim they call themselves Muslim terrorists, right? Right. Um, They violently oppose difference of opinion. They violently oppose difference of faith tradition. They, uh, They violently oppose the assertion of rights by people who are you know, identify differently, look differently, behave differently than themselves. It's a mirror reflection right. of what, what we're supposedly fighting in the in the international arena. And we just elected somebody supported by them to, office, to the and highest office.
2: And who never said, I don't want the endorsement of this terrible group of people. Get away from me.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think he sent out a tweet that got buried uh, at some point, you know, several... Several times he refused to, to denounce them or to, to separate himself from them or to um, to say I don't want that endorsement and then and then he later tweeted a very short tweet about how he he renounces their their right. endorsement and and of course but you know to, that to, was to... not that was not uh, front page news though no that, absolutely he, and he, he did if... that in a sort of quiet way right. And then the KKK just recently, I think just leading up to the election, published a front-page endorsement on their newsletter or whatever. Right,
2: exactly. And if you would imagine, if Hillary Clinton had gotten the endorsement of, let's say, ISIS, and and she said, (laughs) I don't really want ISIS endorsing me, would that be enough? Would that really be enough for people to say, okay, she's made it clear, you know, hey, you can't control who endorses you?
1: But here's the mentality that I have to that I that it, it's so blindingly obvious the mentality that's that's embedded in what we've seen happen and that mentality is they may be terrorists but they are terrorists right 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 they're white terrorists they're right. Christian terrorists yeah right they want me to be great yeah <laughs> right me me a white person right? right this is and that that mentality is. Devastating sure. for America, sure. right? Because it is the antithesis of the ideals that we s- rhetorically and hopefully really strive for. So right? let me, let, what...
2: no, I agree with you. And here's one thing that I'll push back on. And I'm, I feel weird doing it, but I, I, again, I always strive for, you know, the balance in my own head. So anyway, I think a lot of people who supported Trump. <clears throat> are terrible. No, they're not. Uh, I mean, they are. Whatever. The basket of deplorables and whatever. (laughs) People do what they do for a lot of reasons. I think that's an important thing for us to say and you know whether it's people protesting against Trump or people who voted for him people do what they do for a lot of reasons everybody has their own reasons right yeah. and so I think a lot of people who voted for Trump did so because that phrase let's make America great again allowed them to yearn back to a time <laughs> when their life was so different they were children and they lived in maybe a you know government supported suburb in a tract house with a picket fence and all that and there were none of these people of color around and, and, and they weren't thinking well, I want to just be around white people. Some of them were, obviously, but maybe they were just thinking about, you know, the, the comfort and safety and economic optimism that they had back then. But then they don't think about the fact that that was built on the systematic discrimination against black people and other minorities and, you know, and so forth and so on. And so In a way, it feels like... I mean, I've always said... It feels to me like the election of Trump is a failure of consciousness. And it's not... There are a lot of Trump supporters, and we can argue about the fraction, but let's say half of them said, yes, you know... uh, these Mexicans are out of control. we got to get rid of them or whatever it is. But I think the other half are simply being blind. They're living in that bubble. They don't realize how much that nostalgia for an age that never existed, as Jello Biafra once called it, that was built on the systematic persecution, death, and uh, you know, what, marginalization of people of color. And therefore, when they yearn for it, they're yearning for something that, A, is fake, and, B, was built on lies and violence.
1: I think a lot of them would tell you that they're not—they're not—they wouldn't take that next step. They're not about the violence, right? Right? They're not going to—you know—they're not going to be out there burning crosses, of course. Right? I see this a lot. The sort of, I'm not a racist, right? right. There's an objection to the word, to right. the label, racist, right? Right? Because to them, it's vitriolic, right? Right? It doesn't mean anything. It's a bad word, like calling someone, you know, a dumbass. Yeah. Right? Sorry, I think I just cursed. Them. It's okay. No, no, that's on the acceptable
2: um, range. So don't worry about it. But the thing and I can is, always I bleep need, it out if we do.
1: I think we need to redefine the word "racist" for everyone. It's a real word and it's an adjective, and it's not an epithet. It describes, you know, the fundamental belief that some people are better because of the color of their skin, because of the lighter color of their skin, right? Right. right. And and or their their um, their uh, the fact that they. Co- um, that they meet certain other standards, right, that are, that are non-racial but are ethnic. So, for example, um, they're Protestants. They're not Jewish. Right. They're not white people who've converted to Islam, right. right? So there are also cultural standards that are attached to that.
2: Right, and, and that, that, shapes, and and that the whi- whi- sorry, as, if, in case mm-hmm. people don't realize who are listening, the concept of whiteness itself is fluid and dynamic. For a long time, when Italians and Irish people came to the United States, they were not white.
1: Right. So so the original KKK had a real problem with Catholics, for example. You know, Catholics weren't white enough. Right. Um, so KKK opposition was also to Catholics who were often Irish and Italian. Right. So those folks weren't white enough. Which seems, you know, absurd I think in the sort of socially constructed race politics of America today, yeah. but it, it's sort of proof that We're talking about a socially fluid concept. Yeah, definitely. I think the the point, though, is that people are very quick, even folks who voted for Trump, are very quick to reject the label of racism. They're very quick to say, I'm not this bad thing, but I want to continue to support the doing of this bad thing. I will continue to support the doing of this bad thing, but I am not this bad thing. Right, right. Right? And I think we need to return to a... To, to the understanding that racism isn't an empty epithet. It's a mm-hmm. description of something you're doing.
0: Right. Okay.
2: And, that, you know, <laughs> one of the things that I posted right after the um, the election was uh, a list of 10 things every American should do when a new president is elected. I'm not trying to make this specific to one candidate or another, one party or another. Um but you know, one of the items on that list is to stay focused on what people say and do because I think mm-hmm. as soon you know, right. there's this great video and I will shout out my friend Colleen, you knew Colleen Butler, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah she does so tremendous, I think anti-racism
2: work. Oh, she is. She continues to be just an amazing activist. I We had brunch with her last week, and I just, yeah, we had a great discussion, and I can't say enough good things about Colleen Butler. Um. So anyway, she once shared me this video, and I've shared it with billions of people since then, and it's this guy, Jay Smooth, who talks about, and I've talked about him on the podcast before. I may have even played excerpts from it, but, you know, he talks about, and this was from, like, 2008 or something, and it was, you know, yeah, when some, when we have to talk about racism, it's so tempting to say, you know, hey, I think you're racist, and that's, he says, that's not a bad move because you might be wrong, that's a bad move because you might be right, and of course, the problem then is that you immediately get into this, you know, abyss of, well, I've known this person all my life, and you're trying to say what's in their soul, and at the end, he says, if somebody steals my wallet, I'm not going to chase them down and try to find out if they believe deep down in their heart that they're a thief, I want my wallet back, so, yeah. Yeah,
1: right, right, exactly, so.
2: Um, there's a lot of things there and we obviously are going to get back to them, but, uh, I just want to <laughs> shift back to the other timeline. It's kind of like you've read, have you read March Piercy's woman on the edge of time?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's I'll that whole thing.
2: Yeah. She's, you know, the, the character, the main character is kind of shifting back and forth, kind of unbidden, kind of like Billy Pilgrim <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah. uh, slaughterhouse five. And that's kind of how I feel right now, but anyway, it's fine. We'll go with it. Um, so yeah, the, um, so you, you did the work so I left with. New
1: College, I spent a year or so in uh, in Arkansas working at the Women's Project on a yeah. battered women's shelter, doing children's advocacy mm-hmm. and some admin stuff. And I eventually left there to do. Um, but while I, I should mention that while I was with Acorn that whole summer, I petitioned for a campaign, campaign finance um, reform initiative. Nice. And so I was petitioning all over the state of arkansas right in rural in the rural white south rural segregated south i should say um in walmart parking lots at festivals and and i have to say i'm really glad i had that experience because Mm. i have a picture in my head from living in arkansas of what that looks like you know what those communities look like i was i was petitioning so i was talking to people um I wasn't getting I wasn't petitioning for a candidate I was
0: petitioning right.
1: for for an initiative so I had to talk to people. Um and I was by the way really interestingly I was immediately identifiable to pe- to white people mm. as not from there. Right. So I'm I I'm really you can't see me. I'm really pale skinned. <laughs> I pass in a lot of places mm. as white up in the north but in the south I was immediately identified as a person of color. Yeah. Now, Which sorry, I, I should say,
2: sorry. When if you say not from there, we're starting mm-hmm. from what 1500. Because if we talk about before, then you're right. obviously you look exactly like someone from there.
1: Right, right, right. right. But the anyway. implication seemed to be, we didn't think there were any Indians around here anymore. <laughs>
0: right, that right. was
1: what the implication appeared to me to be at that point. Right, because right. the only folks I looked like down there were the statues mm. of the Native Americans that used to live there. Right. Yeah, I mean it was, it was a little bit profound and I was kind of taken aback by people's willingness to touch my hair. Wow. People I didn't know. Yeah, come touch yeah, my hair sure. in public place. I was once crossing a street and somebody touched my hair and said, um, what are you? You know, I mean,
2: goodness. I am a um, creature from beyond the seventh um, dimension.
1: Right, exactly. So I mean, I was like, I, I, uh, uh, I've never <laughs> What been do you say that to that? that? I know. <laughs> I didn't know what to say, you know, and, and I said, so the uh, you know, I've experienced um, this sort of the breadth of this country in which overt sort of racist behavior and speech is perfectly acceptable. I've lived in places where it's still okay to joke about lynching your black president. Yeah. You know, and right. people laugh at it. Yeah. So I know I, I I've been there often enough, and I've lived there often enough to know what it is culturally that's happening. Yeah. Um, it was a long time ago, so I'm willing to be educated on how things have changed. Hey, well,
2: I mean, what? What are we talking about? Twenty years?
1: But it's about yeah. It's been about twenty years. Is twenty years a long time
2: now? <laughs> Well, I know what you mean. I just, you know. The historian <laughs> just, in me I know, is like, I don't think really? Any way around that. Eric. Yeah, no, I know. Sorry, <laughs> go on.
1: But then, so then I left Arkansas because it was actually really hard to be there. I bet. Psychically. It was See, really hard uh, Sorry, to be.
2: again, I hate to interrupt, but, you know, when people touching your hair, Phoebe Robinson is a great comedian who just put out a book called No, You Can't Touch My Hair and Other Things I Have to Keep <laughs> Saying. Um, it, it, when students, like, you know, brush a speck off of my shoulder, I immediately start going, don't touch me. I have this bubble. I'm just like, <laughs> get away. And I know that that reaction is something that comes from male privilege and white privilege. Because if I were a woman of color and I had that attitude, people would immediately start being like, well, you're just another angry, bitter woman. You're an angry person of color. And rah, 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 rah. But I get to be a grumpy, angry, you know, vitriolic, loud guy.
1: Yeah. Um, so I just well, I, I I would
2: like to say I don't know how people of color deal with that because I would go nuts.
1: Well, also, I mean, I think there are certain there are certain aspects of the sort of station that you're in, right? Yeah. I'm I'm essentially begging people to talk to me about politics in Walmart parking lot. That's
2: kind in of what I do, Arkansas. except I'm not I'm not in a Walmart parking lot. It's just it's in a classroom, but
1: it's sort of. No, no, no. But time. I mean like if I'm begging you to talk to me about something, I'm not going to take issue with the fact that you just touched me and said something right, really offensive. Right, right, right. Yeah, there's a power if dynamic. I have to do my job. There is right, a t- right. tremendous power imbalance there. Yeah, yeah. And I think similarly, what's, what's really interesting is that I have not apparently come very far in 20 years because when I was poll watching at, in here in Bucks County and, you know, the judge of elections came over and, you know, rubbed my back inappropriately oh, God. I was in shock right sure. so I just so after the election I wrote this thing about how I um I posted this thing about my experiences in the polls and going into the polls I was um you know we went to a training for poll watchers right yeah. so if you're an attorney even if you're in retired status or you're a student a law student you can go and volunteer to be a poll observer for one of the candidates Every candidate is legally entitled to, I think, two observers. Yeah. So I was observing, um, and there was a concern on the part of the Democrats that there would be, based on a lot of the, the sort of stuff Trump was saying in the campaign, that there would be um, active intimidation at
0: the polls. Yeah.
1: Right. And Bucks County has swung marginally blue in recent years. Mm-hmm. So it's a real battleground state. So I was preparing myself for, like, open-carry truckfuls of, of, you know, big guys or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and that didn't happen. So there was a certain certain way in which I relaxed. And then a couple of things happened that day. You know, a Republican councilman came in, and by way of introduction, he shouldn't have been in the polling area anyway, but he, by way of introduction, he, he you know, Looked over at the line and said, "You know, sometimes I think Hitler had it right."
2: Oh uh, yeah, right. I remember you wrote about that.
1: And uh, you know, I mean, I again in total shock. I don't know why I'm still shocked by this stuff, but I was wow. completely in shock. And I yeah. thought to myself, you know, and then later, a you know one of the Democratic poll volunteers said, "Don't worry, if anybody gets out of line." Um, I'll tell them I'll throw them in a cell with a big black guy. Oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to be racist. Right? <laughs> now, and I'm thinking to myself, and then, then later I was talking to this old judge, previous judge of elections came by to visit, see how things were going on, and we were having a conversation, and he, you know, it starts sort of touching, rubbing my back in a way that was uncomfortable. And I thought to myself, you know, if these three things happened in the span of, I don't know, seven hours, yeah, right? If folks, and these are folks who probably wouldn't say that they were being racist or sexist. Right. Right? If this is what's happening inside the polling station, then we don't need any trucks full of guys with big guns outside. Right. Right? Because the guys who are running the show are still stuck in the 1950s. Yeah. And they're still telling themselves, and the only thing we've accomplished with the civil rights movement, apparently in their mind, is that they've learned that, that they shouldn't be called racist or sexist because yeah. those are bad things to be, right. that those are bad words. Yeah. But that they can continue to behave in the same way, so long as they add the appellation, oh, I'm not trying to be racist. Right. Right? Right. Cause it's because it's all about what you're you know, trying
2: to do. It has nothing to do with what the actual effect of your actions are. Right. right. It's exactly. just about your
1: intentions, exactly. man. Exactly, because looking at the actual effect of my actions means I have to consider your experience as valid, as as valid (laughs) as my experience of this moment, right? right? And I'm not willing to do that. So I'm going to both do the action and then I'm going to provide you the label and the way in which you should feel about this action. Yeah. Right? So I'm going to say this really racist thing about big black men, you know, and then I'm going to tell you. How you should think about how you should take that, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's really absurd. It's it's like it's like um, really, it's like having gone through the rabbit hole. Like it's, it, it it is Alice it, in Wonderland. Right
2: right. right, 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 and it reminds it's me of a, a little.
1: Co- it's what I think gaslighting is the right word for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay,
1: sure. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to. And then I'm going to provide a narrative for what I've just done that completely contradicts what I've just done.
0: Yeah,
2: right. right? It, it, actually, that that description you just gave reminded me of a quote from Italo Calvino, and he says... Um, There are two ways to escape the suffering of the inferno in which we are all living every day. The first is easy for many people, uh, and many people accept it. Uh, Accept the inferno and become a part of it such that you can no longer see it. The second is risky and demands constant vigilance and uh, attention, uh, willingness to learn. Uh, Seek and learn to recognize who and what in the midst of inferno is not inferno, and then help them endure, give them space. And I think the emphasis for me on that second part is the the, it requires vigilance it requires willingness to learn because you know that need to check yourself and recognize like not only like check your privilege because that phrase has been used to the point where a lot of people use it as a punchline but i mean i mean it's it's true there's no doubt that it's that's something we all have to do but it's it's the need to just again like be aware that empathy you started with like you know we have to be able to say okay look yeah you know if i'm kicking this cardboard box down the street um it doesn't mean anything, I'm just kicking a box, but there's. it's possible that someone is sleeping in that box or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, the, mm-hmm. the possibility that the way I see the world is not the only way to see the world.
1: Right. Although, I think one of the things that this election has taught us is that there is such a deep geographic and cultural divide between the, the areas of this country that mm-hmm. have very divergent political and social viewpoints that many people... For many people there will never be a moment of confrontation yeah. with the other side. Right,
2: right,
0: right. Sure.
1: Right. It's very, very easy and I learned this living in Arkansas. I felt so far away. Now this is this is the internet was just starting to take off. I'm yeah. aging myself here, but mm-hmm. we didn't have internet access in our home, in our apartment. So this was this was a time when if you lived in Arkansas you were more or less disconnected from the rest of the country. Right. Um, I also didn't have a television, which was my own fault. Yeah. <laughs> not a fan so but but I think that that we do as a country have to figure out how we're gonna build uh Cultural infrastructure that links. You know, we've done a great job with roads. It's a right. big country. We've right. done a great job with airplanes. Yeah. We kind of skipped over railways. I know, right? A mistake, you see that's the a
2: Yeah, the Japanese but, have right, great exactly. rail systems. I'm just like, we could
1: do exactly. that. We really could. So maybe that's part of Trump's infrastructure plan. We can only <laughs> hope, right? <laughs> I, anyway, yeah. but but at the end of the day, like we have not made a cultural infrastructure right. beyond McDonald's. <laughs> And Walmart Walmart, that hold this nation together, right? Right. We have failed, you know. We have failed to, and the thing is, it's possible. We have a a public education system. Yeah, yeah. We produce our textbooks more or less centrally.
0: Yeah, right.
1: We could incorporate cultural, and I mean, it's a little scary to talk about moral education in public schools because there's, you know, no religion in schools is big sort of mantra, mantra, but. The truth is that you don't need to introduce religion into schools to introduce a lesson plan in public decency.
0: Right, right.
1: And civic responsibility. Yeah. And I learned recently, you probably know a lot more about this than I do, but I learned recently that it was after the mass protests of the late 60s and the mid-60s that, um, and I guess early 70s as well, that civics, the the subject civics in public schools got transformed into social studies. Right. Into a sort of less political, less know your rights, sure. less less how to be a citizen right. unit, and into a sort of um, looser um, learn about um, culture and customs. It and
2: was mostly let's learn about World War II. That's that's a lot of what people study right. in social studies in high right, school. Right. I think
1: so. So, the thing is, what are we missing when that right. unit stops being about how to be a citizen in your own country in right. the present day? Right. Right? How to be an active citizen. What are the actual social issues that are relevant to your lives today? What happens mm-hmm. when you take that out of public schools? Yeah. And it's and funny I think because. we seeing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, I, uh, funny, you know, yeah. I
2: sponsor an Amnesty International group in my high school. And so, like, I'm always talking about being a global citizen and, and then what the responsibility is as an American and whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a tightrope act, especially because in the English class, you know, I'm supposed to be talking about you know gerunds and and sentence structure and all that, and we do. But I'm also going to talk about what's going on in the world and what's important to you and what does it mean to be an American and all that. And so I, right. as a result, sometimes I have students who complain about like, well, you're forcing your opinions on us. And I'm like, no, I'm asking you to tell me what you think and then you don't, and then I tell you what I think. And if that's forcing yeah. my opinions huh. on you, you don't understand the nature of dialectic. And I know they don't, but I'm trying to teach them about it. But It can be frustrating. So,
1: Yeah, no, but but I think that's, that's actually it, is that that's discretionary for you.
0: Yeah, You yeah. choose
1: to bring that right. into the classroom, right. and you have educated yourself in that way. But I yeah. think what, what is kind of frightening is that it is actually possible as a student in this country to go to school for 16 years and never touch civics. Yeah, oh, sure. Have no idea how Congress functions. Right. You know, you might be able to name the three branches of government, of government <laughs> but you probably can't name the pre- vice president.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure.
1: You know, and you certainly don't know anything about major social movements that have shaped your rights and responsibilities in this
0: right, country. Right, right.
1: And that's definitely. a real problem. Oh, yeah. You know, because then you are condemned to soundbite politics. Mm-hmm. You know, then you are extremely manipulable.
2: Yeah. Um, so, think, OK, sorry, go ahead.
1: And I think that's a real problem, right? Because the, like one of the soundbites I hear over and over again is, Donald Trump's not racist. I voted for him because he's going to bring our jobs back. Right. But if you look at Obama's record on jobs, it's astounding yeah. what President Obama has done on jobs.
2: Right. Especially considering I mean, where he started from.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I mean, forget where he started from. He reduced the long-term jobless rate from 5% to just over 1%. Yeah. He reduced the jobless rate as a whole from 10% to 5%, which is sort of where we want it to be, yeah, right? Sure. That's considered very, very, very good right. for folks who don't already know. The man has, has achieved record job growth with a consensus, consistency that we've never seen before yeah. in recent history. Right. And so for folks to hear, I'm going to make jobs, I'm going to make the best jobs, and to not have any idea... You know, and simultaneously reject the legacy of President Obama. Right. You know, I mean, it's a it's a really deep lack of civic engagement. Sure. Um. Yeah, and and to be honest, I think when I hear that, what I hear is, here's a man who, for eight years, has been, and I don't have a television, so and I know this, so I don't know how other folks don't know this, but for eight years, he's been saying the same darn thing, which is the economy is changing yeah. automation is happening right. these are these are things that we don't have control over like the mm-hmm. course of history goes in one direction right right automation is happening yeah i can't stop it and you can't stop it so right. get on the boat mm-hmm yeah. And let's, let's see
2: what we can do with... Right, retrain and Stephen Hawking said a very interesting thing in an online discussion recently because someone asked him, like, what about automation? What do we do about the fact that so many robots are doing the jobs that humans used to do? And he said, well, look... We're going to have a lot of wealth created by these robots. The question is, what happens with them? And one option is to say, the people who own the robots get all that wealth. The other option is to say, let's take all that wealth and make a you know, big cake with it and then give everyone one slice of that cake. And right. it's up to us to decide which path we want to take. And right now, we're going toward the people who own the robots get all the wealth. And I've said right, on this show right. many times, like, that's not okay. And we need to transition to that other path.
1: Which is what was so inspirational about Bernie Sanders' c- yes. candidacy, because I've never really heard a presidential candidate in my lifetime articulate a, a parallel to European economies and say, right. look, European economies have gone down this path before. Yeah. And what they've decided is the, the slices of cake right. you know, scenario that you talked about. And as a result, they're able to pass laws limiting the work week to 25 hours a week.
2: Imagine that.
1: That's pretty darn great. It's wonderful.
2: Right? Everybody should be on board with that. And it's funny because and when a, you say that to young people, they say... And a real
1: retirement system. Right. You keep belly aching about how Social Security is going away, Medicare is going away, they're too. the deductibles are too high. I get that. Yeah. I get it. But there's a solution to that. There's incredible wealth in this country, but it's divided up all wrong. Sure. You know,
2: and and um, the thing that galls me of course is yeah I'm frustrated about economic conditions I feel like I'm not you know my kids aren't going to have a better future than I am the the economic system is so messed up let's elect a millionaire who pretends to be a billionaire because and he's hired illegal immigrants throughout his career he's defrauded everyone he's ever worked with he'll help me out mm-hmm. That's that's that yeah. surface level thinking I just can't even follow
1: well, he said jobs. He said he's, right. jo- he's going to make jobs and they're going to be great jobs. Right, right, right. right.
2: I don't need and, specifics. And meanwhile,
1: he has this track record of short-changing small businesses yeah. that he contracts with to such an extent that he could no longer work in real estate. Right. Because nobody would do the jobs because sure. they knew they wouldn't get paid and they couldn't afford to work without pay. Right. Right? So that's his actual track record, and I find it astonishing that working people in this country would look at that track record and say, but he's going to pay me. Right, right, right. I'm going to be different yeah, because I'm wearing a red hat. <laughs> right, I don't exactly. know what that is. I don't know what right. that's about. It's. I, um, I think it
2: is a form of tribalism that people have the attitude of like, you know, yeah, like if I wear this garment, if I fly the red flag when there's a blood in the office, then I'll be okay. And in many yeah. cases, that might be true. But then the question is what happens to the Crips if the Bloods are in charge? Um, and how long until they believe that you don't wear enough red or whatever it is? Yeah. So, yeah,
1: well there's that, but then there's also um, there's also why why have they rejected the job growth that has already happened? Oh, why sure. have they rejected the, the messages that have been sent to them? Why right. why do they believe that their tribe is Donald Trump and yeah. not Barack Obama who's actually delivered on jobs and who has given them advice us all advice over right. and over and over exactly. again about how to be participants in the economy. And the only thing I can come back to is race.
2: It is race. Right. Exactly. Cause I was going to say, why is it that they believe they, they're more, they have more in common with Donald Trump than they do struggling black workers who are in exactly right. the same position, right. but they are a different color. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. But at, I mean, at the end, that's, I think what it comes down to. I think, I think in, to the extent it's anything else, it's that they hear Barack Obama, President Obama, and they hear Secretary Clinton speak, and they say, that those people don't talk like me. Yeah, sure. Right? And I think part of what Bernie Sanders had going for him is as mm-hmm. simple as, well, I mean, I think the broader thing he had going for him is that he tells the truth.
2: Right, sure. He's
1: like the Cornell West of the Senate, <laughs> right?
2: He, he should he, totally use that as his motto. I'm the <laughs> Cornell West of the Senate.
1: And- and I think that the problem that um, Secretary Clinton and President Obama had is that they talk a different kind of talk. Mm-hmm. They don't sound like a lot of Americans. Right. And so the difference is exaggerated, right? Yeah. The differences that people perceive are exaggerated there. And then, and then you have this guy who is actually of the same social and economic class as them yeah. in Donald Trump, but he talks like, he talks like Bernie Sanders. He talks like a working-class guy. And so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think there are a lot of sort of identity politics at play here. And I'm not a huge fan of identity politics, but mm-hmm. but I I have to say they seem to have decided this election in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think in, until we deepen civic education in this country, until we introduce reintroduce civic education yeah. in this country, until we give people the tools to understand something beyond identity politics, Mm -hmm. we're kind of doomed to them.
0: Sure,
2: sure. Um, So, okay, sorry to keep jumping back and forth, but um, what year did you leave Arkansas? Oh,
1: gosh. I started law school in 97, so it must have been... September of 97 okay
2: so you had asked me sort of where what I've been doing since new college and so I'll briefly fill in for people who may not know on the podcast and for you um so I stuck around for a year to work in a bookstore and then I went to um, the University of Florida in Gainesville in order to get my teaching degree because they didn't have any teaching programs at new college um did that for a and year you're and a from half. Florida, right? I'm from Gainesville originally. Yeah, yeah. So it was just, you know, three hours south to New College. I had grown up in Gainesville, three hours south to New College, three hours back to Gainesville. And then um, I went to California for a summer to work on East Timor stuff in 1999. Uh, went back to Gainesville, finished up my degree, taught for a year there, moved to Wisconsin in 2001. And then I've been living here ever since teaching. So that's pretty much my life story since New College in three sentences.
1: And you're good with the six-month winters?
2: Uh, <laughs> good is a really tough word to use with regard to Wisconsin's winters. Fortunately, global warming is helping with
0: that.
1: Really, is it? Because I just left Illinois. I left Chicago about two years ago. Yeah. And I'll tell you.
2: I mean, yeah, it it's hard. it's not helping as much as I to- want it to be helping. But I'll tell you this. Here's the here's the silver lining for me. Um, I actually wrote a piece for a journal called the Thirty Two Eighty Eight Review, and it was called "I Never Knew Winter." Um, and uh, it's uh, I'll have the rights back to it soon, so I'll put it on my website or something. Anyway, so um, but I wrote about my relationship to uh, the, the 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 weather here, um, and. Uh, there's one part that I just wanted to, I became intimate with shovels and yeah, here we go. Okay. So then one weekday, I talk about all the miserable things about winter in Wisconsin and shoveling and sliding around on the roads and having to wear actual coats and all that. Um, But the one, okay. Then one weekday in February, 2003, I got an early morning phone call. It was a robot from school announcing that classes were canceled because of snow. I hung up and sat there stunned just like that. No school, no students, No meetings, no new papers to grade. I wasn't even sick. I could eat breakfast at a table like a normal human being instead of gulping down a bagel on the road. I could play video games and watch Happy Gilmore. I never knew the childhood joy of snow days as a student, but I'm certain it cannot compare to the blessed euphoria Mm -hmm. of relief that teachers get when school is canceled. So that was (laughs) a nice thing, and it continues to be a nice thing about living in a frozen hoth. You know, what
1: was crazy about Chicago was I was expecting all these great snow days. And I don't know if it's different in in Wisconsin, but in in Chicago, people, there's like, snow will not stop them. It won't even make them pause. Yeah. (laughs) So, for example, the first major snowstorm, I remember my husband and I woke up and we're like trying to listen to the radio and trying to go online to figure out, you know, what the delays and cancellations are. And it was radio silence. Yeah. it was as if not a flake had fallen, right It was business as usual, and it continued to be that way for all six years six six years we lived there. yeah, it was like you know it's like people people saw snow, even six feet of snow, yeah, it's really just a hiccup and I, I mean, I just found it like those those are some brave people out in Chicagoland, yeah. <laughs> It was crazy. No doubt. So I so so after you leave, so my Arkansas. timeline was Arkansas to Boston, where I went to Northeastern School of Law. Um, studied there for three years, clerked for a Superior Court trial court judge, mm-hmm. um, and for a year, and then got a job with Community Legal Services in Philadelphia as an attorney in their public benefits unit. So mm-hmm. I did welfare rights work. Um, was a focus, eventually a focus on, on health care, access to health care. Um, I ran a clinic for, there was a free medical clinic, um, and I uh, eventually started going out there to do a sort of uh, community-based practice to help folks get emergency medical assistance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and Pennsylvania was sort of odd in that, although states are federally required to have an emergency medical assistance program that that allows people to get insured who otherwise can't get regular medical insurance mm-hmm. uh, for all kinds of reasons immigration status um, There are all kinds. Of, there's like a list of reasons why folks folks would not be able to get regular medical assistance right. they don't have a disability that, of, of a certain length or they don't you know they don't fall into a category like you know having breast cancer there's special mm-hmm. funding for that anyway there was no apparatus. There were no forms to fill out to get emergency medical care. So one of one of the sort of things that I did was create that apparatus, create yeah. that infrastructure so that Pennsylvania had a functioning emergency medical assistance program. Excellent. So I did that, and then I, uh, I was working with a ton of uh, immigrants from mm-hmm. ver- a variety of immigrant communities. Pens- Philadelphia is an extremely diverse place. Yeah. Um, So I ended up um, linking into the language access uh, project at Community Legal Services, which was uh, really at the forefront of applying and advocating under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which says essentially that um, you can't discriminate on the basis of national origin, among other things. Mm -hmm. And then later there was a Supreme Court decision that said, Language is a proxy for national origin. So you can't mm. discriminate against somebody if you receive an, even a dollar of federal funding because they speak a language other than English. Right. Which means that all kinds of institutions that we interact with all the time, like hospitals and um, schools and stuff like that, libraries, can't discriminate against people on the basis of uh, language. Right. So I started to get into both filing complaints against folks who weren't complying, but also working with folks who really wanted to come into compliance on how to be accessible mm-hmm. institutionally to people who don't speak English. And because we're such a weirdly monolithic and huge country, folks don't have a lot of cultural knowledge, they don't mm-hmm. have a lot of cro- they don't have a lot of language capacity outside of English. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it became a really important role to fill to start to teach institutions how to even conceive of the barrier. Right. And then find solutions to that barrier. And uh then I did some community economic development work where I worked with women who were trying to set up poor women mostly of color who were trying to set up businesses, daycare businesses in their homes. Mm -hmm. Just working with them on getting the appropriate zoning and licensing. Right. Um just navigating you know, navigating. Really. Sure. Um And then I, you know, and during that time, I met and married my husband, Uh um, who's uh, also um, Muslim, but Uh of Pakistani origin via England, so he was born and raised in London. Interesting. Um, What's his take on all of this? What's that?
2: What's his take on all of this? I mean, it's obviously... Well, he's
1: glad he has another passport. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Sure. Um, yeah, he's much darker skinned than I am. So uh, we have a lot of really interesting conversations about how people respond to us and how bad. much we pass and, sure. you know, what that does. Yeah. Um, so, but he was doing research science at the time. He was doing breast cancer research, and mm-hmm. he really wanted to get out of the lab and go explore some other things.
3: So, mm-hmm.
1: and I was ready to explore some other things. So I went to the ABA in their legal services division, which is yeah. their division around public interest law. Mm-hmm. And he went to the British consulate to work on trade and investment um, on, in biotech. Interesting. So he was very happy to be around other British people for a little while. Yeah. He was homesick. Sure. And, uh, and we both kind of, you know, retrained, broadened our horizons. Yeah. Figured some things out. Um, and we had a couple of kids there yeah so i uh i stopped working outside of the home for a little while
0: Uh uh,
1: about three years sure and uh you know just struggled through chicago winters made some lovely friends in the midwest Mm -hmm. took a look around and then um and then i couldn't couldn't bear being out of the legal services world anymore Mm -hmm. i went back to legal services Uh and it just so happened that that legal services agency was in a place part of Illinois, part of suburban and rural Illinois, this is north-central Illinois, um, that was experiencing a dramatic influx in, in immigrant populations, so they uh-huh. really needed to become language accessible.
0: Yeah. <clears throat>
1: so I started doing that, and, and because I was in the very beginning stages of setting up their infrastructure, when Nadine got a job back here in Pennsylvania, and we decided we wanted to be near the grandparents, mm-hmm. wanted to raise the kids near the grandparents, sure. wanted to have more of a community and less of a winter right right we uh you know i was able to keep that job so when the kids went to preschool i would you know work on getting good contracts with interpreters and training the staff Uh via webinar and all that kind of stuff and uh and then they you know uh, they got somebody on the ground there which was great so a year a year in to me having left they found someone who could start to do the outreach. So yeah. once you set up the infrastructure, you need to tell people, mm-hmm. you can come now. You're safe with us.
0: Right. Right.
1: right. Uh, we'll take care of you. Yeah. So they found that person, and that was great. And a few months later, you know, Donald Trump started campaigning. And I wrote that first Dear Non-Muslim Allies letter that, mm-hmm. you know, I had this, I had a very private Facebook page with like 300 or so friends. And a lot of them are passionate about similar things. And so I wrote that letter and it seemed like a lot of folks were alarmed at what Donald Trump was saying at that time, Yeah. but didn't know how to say it without sounding alarmist. Didn't know that they were the people to be saying it. And yeah. I think people were kind of hungry for someone to speak up and say, what the hell is going on with this guy? Right. And I just wrote the letter at the right time. I think, mm-hmm. um, And that original letter um, started with a story about a German-Jewish composer who at the time was probably 70-something years old, who I uh, attended a summer school for designing society with back when I was in college and did that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is a guy who left Germany when he was 15, and his entire family died in the Holocaust. Yeah. So he had this conversation with his family where he was like, "This is crazy. You can't. We can't stay." And his family said, "Our business is here. Our lives mm-hmm. are here. We've been in Germany for, I don't know, ten generations. Right. Like, we're not. We're not going anywhere." Yeah. And he left, and as a result, he survived. Yeah. And he used to. I was fascinated by that history. I've always been fascinated with, um, sort of. The, this goes back to, to being having empathy for people on the margins. I've always been fascinated with what happened in the Holocaust. Right. And the, the bizarre-to-me idea that you could demonize someone because of their faith or their ethnicity. Right. I couldn't figure out, because I was so much different, I thought, than the people around me. I couldn't figure out how they even knew who was Jewish and who was not. Right, right, <laughs> like, sure. They're just all white people. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I didn't, it just... The things that people will look to to divide themselves from other people has always fascinated me. Yeah, sure. Um, the the lengths to which people will go to find someone that they're better than
0: mm-hmm.
1: has always fascinated me.
2: So we're about an hour in here, uh, a little more than that. And so I think it's probably time for us to get to the main thing that I wanted to talk about here. Uh, <laughs> we've been doing that along the way. Um, you know, right after the election happened, you wrote something on Facebook that really obviously, I mean, everything you write makes an impression on everyone who reads it. So, you know, this is what's nothing special. But it it really kind of hit me hard. Um, And I wonder if you would read that first thing you wrote after the results came in.
1: Let me pull it up here. Sure. So what I wrote was, this was written at 1 a.m. after the election results came in. I just, the, the last note I'll say on Herbert Brun, that composer, was that he used to say to me, and I had no idea why. Be sure that your passport is in order. Mm. And I thought that was a result of his experience. And I'm finding it kind of alarmingly related to my own experience now. Right. So, right. But with that said, I'll, I'll now read what I wrote just after the election results came in. So I wrote, I was going to write a Dear America post. But you know what? I don't feel like writing to America anymore. I feel like America proves itself to be beyond redemption tonight. I watched polls in suburban Bucks County today and met some lovely groups of bipartisan volunteers working the polls. The problems were blessedly normal. Disability access issues resolved with compassion and common sense, voter registration issues resolved with patience and diligence. But there were some other normal things that were horrifying. A Republican councilman swinging by my corner, gesturing to the line and saying quietly, looking at this, I think Hitler had it right. Almost everyone in line was white. Right? Could he have been talking about the efficiency of dictatorship? I don't know. I was too stunned to respond. Minutes later, a Democratic poll worker came over to chat. Don't worry, he said. Anybody gives us trouble, I'll threaten to put them in a cell with a big black guy. Not, you know, I don't mean that in a racist way. That guy happened to be Jewish. He was absolutely appalled when I told him what the other guy had said about Hitler. Much later, as I chatted with the judge of elections during a quiet time at the polls about a hold up in the precinct next door, The previous judge of elections came by. I'd never met him before. He was animated, high breathing. At the end of a casual conversation, including four women and and men, he reached over and put his hand flat on my back, close to my side, and left it there for far longer than was comfortable. No one said anything. I was uncomfortable with the presumption he made in touching my body. It was too much to be okay, but not enough for me to call him out. I couldn't figure out why he would feel at all entitled to touch me that way. This was not the rural south. This was the suburban northeast corridor between Philadelphia and New York. I witnessed a lot of bipartisan cooperation today, but I also witnessed inexcusable bipartisan racism and overt physical sexism. We've got deep problems in this country with race and gender indifference and a complete lack of consensus on equality. In fact, as of tonight, we have convincing data that half of our country wants to make racism, sexism, and xenophobia the cornerstone of our society. I voted for Hillary Clinton today because I only seem white until you hear my name. I voted for her because my kids and husband don't pass. I voted for her for every time I've been talked over, taught less, assigned more or touched been, been touched inappropriately for being a woman. I voted because I want to believe that some that someone who has taken so much crap as much crap as she has because of the body she was born in for the last 40 some years must know how important it is that we end glass ceilings unequal pay police brutality mass incarceration and so many of the other structural inequities that hold some of us down while rewarding hate i voted for hillary clinton and for democrats all the way down the ballot because we need leadership at every level that would never talk the trash that i heard today somehow despite the quiet moments of aggression i allowed myself to get caught up in the much more public collegiality of the day i allowed myself to believe that america was not ugly I allowed myself to partake in the fiction stupidly arrogant Americans tell themselves about how we are morally superior because of our notions of justice and liberty. Tonight, America has demonstrated that it believes that patriotism is white and male, that it believes President Barack Obama to have been a trespasser in the office of president because of the color of his skin, and that it believes that a woman has no place in the White House instead white america has decided that its every frustration can be aimed at a neighbor who looks differently or loves differently or prays differently america has demonstrated that it has fallen away from the ideals that held the promise of greatness it somehow forgot that greatness isn't guaranteed that greatness is the striving to be better to work harder and to love more as we say in hardship as well as in ease alhamdulillah praise be to god who knows all that we do not know or, as some folks say God is good all the time may we be granted wisdom and guidance and may we be blessed with protection from all that is hateful or ignorant or arrogant from within ourselves and outside of ourselves may those of us who love find our way forward in love and in light and in tenderness peace to you all
2: thank you um, yeah, so, I mean, there's so many things we can talk about there. The the thing that really um, hit a nerve, I think, with me was the question of, you know, you said, and I'm going to probably get the wording wrong here, uh, is America beyond redemption, right? Yeah. Um, Cornell West starts his book, Race Matters, with the question of black nationalism. I don't know if he starts it, but it certainly is a big part of that book. And the question is, you know, he says that black nationalism poses a deep challenge to America, When people feel as though they cannot live in a society with other people, what does that say about that larger society, right? And I've long felt, you know, the first time I was exposed to like lesbian separatism at New College, I was, you know, at first sort of repulsed and like, oh my God, how can, what's wrong with you? You know, we're all American, we're all people and this and that. And then I started to realize like, you know what? A, I can't tell that person how to feel about their treatment in society and B, that's a mirror that the rest of society has to deal with and ask themselves, how have we treated people to the point where they feel that way? And so the question that I have, you know, the question of America's redemption, um, I, I don't know. I, I I want to believe that it's not. And And, you know, look, I wouldn't be an educator if I didn't believe that I could go into that classroom every day and try to, you know, win against the abstract monsters of ignorance and apathy and the rest of it. But I know that I'm going to have a limited effect and I wouldn't do environmental activism if I didn't believe that we could maybe keep the earth habitable. But I know it's not looking good. And so I wonder what you see as the the realistic limits of hope. Hmm.
1: That's an interesting way to frame it. So re- redemption is to compensate for the flaws of, right? I know you're right. an English teacher, so, so you're going to want to define terms, right? Sure. So to to compensate for the faults of.
0: right?
1: So what are the faults, right? The faults, right now we have, you know, we've elected someone who's openly racist, xenophobic, hateful right. to large, large groups of, I mean, including, you know, misogynistic. So yeah. more than 50% of the country, sure. right? That's a pretty huge fault. Oh, yeah. And so I think that you cannot compensate for a fault by ignoring it. Oh, yeah. That's, that's sort of the premise that I'll start with. So I think hope lies in telling the truth. And I'm going to just, just openly say that I steal that from Cornell West very proudly. Yeah. You have to be a truth teller. It doesn't help when Hillary, when Secretary Clinton, sorry, says um, we need to approach President-elect Donald Trump with an open mind—that we mm-hmm. owe him an open mind. Right. I don't owe an open mind to someone who laughed about killing Muslims with bullets dipped in pig's blood. Well,
2: it's, uh, sorry. I, again, lacks I hate. That
1: credibility. Right. I. I
2: mean, and again, like I'm not. I'm not going to defend Donald Trump. Certainly. Right. I, right. I,
1: right. No, I'm not. And I'm not. The, no, the I know, emphasis I know, I know. isn't towards you. But no, I of think, course.
2: But but. I so the, the thing I would say. Sorry. The thing I would say there is. Is there a difference between having an open mind towards someone and saying, like, I'm going to hold you accountable? Like, I'm not going to be naive about how I talk to you.
1: No, you know, I mean, I think I think that Donald Trump has put himself in a unique position, right? Yeah. This is not a difference in in degree. Right. He's not somewhere different on a poli- on an acceptable political spectrum. Right. Okay? He's a difference in kind.
0: Yeah, Okay.
1: And I don't think that we can dumb it down and say that that's negligible or that was just rhetoric. Sure. This is a guy who settled a lawsuit for racial discrimination in 1972. Yeah. Okay, 73 maybe, early 70s. So, again, I'll go back to that Maya Angelou quote. This man has shown us who he is. Yeah. At least who he may potentially be comfortable being. Right. And he's been very vociferous about it. He hasn't been shy about it. Right. He's been clear. He's doubled down. He's said these things time and time again. If we fail to at least take him at his word, right. if we fail to hear what he is saying, yeah. if we follow President Obama's direction and Secretary Clinton's direction to see that he succeeds, well, then I think we have only ourselves to blame. Mm. When he succeeds on all that his platform was,
0: right.
1: all that he said his platform was, yeah. and I'm not saying that we need to be in the streets. I'm not saying, you know, I'm I'm from Pakistan a generation ago. Okay, yeah. chaos kills as many people as maliciousness. Mm. I'm not looking for civil disarray here. Right. Okay, I'm not an. I'm actually not an anarchist.
2: But you also recognize I and I, government. I know that you know that. Uh, peaceful protest is obviously not the same as anarchy, and there's nothing wrong with getting out in the streets right, and protesting right. peacefully. Absolutely. Now
1: that I think is true, and I actually think that there is no shame in using every legal, every legal means of protest mm-hmm. in our power to ensure that we are not committed for the next four years to a leader who wants. Who everyone wants us to believe can uphold the ideals of our nation and the Constitution while he campaigned on just the opposite right right I think that's disingenuous and I think part of the redemption of this country comes from having leaders who are willing to tell the truth who are willing Mm -hmm. to say look a peaceful transition of of power is good for all of us right but in order to have that in order to guarantee that Donald Trump president-elect Trump you take some responsibility for recanting. Yes. Right? Right. You have to. Yeah. If you want this office, mm-hmm. you lost the popular vote. Sure. The least you need to do to gain the confidence of this nation is to recant what you said. Yeah. What you campaigned on. And if your followers have a problem with that, then we have a really big problem in our country and, and we need to pursue every legal means of making sure that you never take office in jail. Sure. That's that's what I think. Um, and, you know, I, I'm willing to have that conversation about whether that's reasonable, but that's mm-hmm. where I am right yeah, now. Yeah, sure. That's because what it at would this require. point, in my personal experience, I'm a parent, so mm-hmm. I do not have the luxury of just simply just. Dis- disregarding what he has campaigned on Mm. i have to have an emergency plan yeah i have to know that if they start registering me because of my faith that i know where to go yeah now i mean simultaneously with that i you know a lot of folks say that's fear-mongering and that's you know that's alarmist and
2: it's just saying what he said just
1: being pragmatic oh sure you know i'm not talking about being afraid i'm talking about having a plan Right. Because he said he's gonna do X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z is bad for my family. I need to know where I'm gonna go.
2: Sure. As you know, Ice and, Cube once said, um and this is obviously a very extreme connection, but I think the principle is similar. He said, I'd Rather be judged by twelve than carried by six. You know, like mm-hmm. it, the the idea of being ready um is just sensible. Boots from the coup mm-hmm. said if you stay ready you don't have to get ready.
1: Right, right. And so the thing is though that when you when the election of a particular president has American citizens, right? Thinking that way. Yeah. That's a national crisis. It is. Okay. The election of a presidency, the peaceful transition of power is based on something and it's not based on me putting my head down. Yeah. In a democracy it should right. not be. Right. The peaceful transition of power is should be based on the ability to trust that the man who comes into that Oval Office will have some basic as Michelle Obama said mm-hmm. before the election, basic human decency. Right. She she asserted that he lacked basic human decency. Right. I don't know if like a week or so before the election. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe a few weeks before the election. Mm-hmm. So tell me tell me as a person of color, I mean I'm not saying you tell me, but no, I what know. I want to be told right. <laughs> is, is how I'm supposed to do a 24 hour pivot from this guy lacks basic human decency and he's talking about registering you and surveilling you to let's have an open mind. Right. That's a hard pivot. Mm-hmm. That's a tough pivot. Right. So that doesn't mean I think there's no going to do. Right. What I'm going to do is run for local office. Nice. I've already, you know, I've already developed a network of local friends awesome. who feel the same way, Yeah. right?
2: Oh, that makes me so, so happy.
1: So this, what's that?
2: That makes me so happy. Vote Sophia.
1: <laughs> what's that? Vote Sophia. Vote Sophia. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. so, I mean, you know, out of this election has come a tremendous amount of organizing online and offline among people who are astounded yeah. at this result, right. right? And I think that organizing has a certain power and energy in it, mm-hmm. and I think you know, if I don't want the previous judge of election to be groping me and I don't want <laughs> the councilman to be talking about Hitler with pride, then I need to be the council person and I need to be the judge of elections. And sure. so I need to be willing to do that in the service of my country right. if I want to see a change. And so there's a lot of organizing going on around moving into local office, around yeah. building power in our communities. Um, so, I mean, I think I think the change has to be local. I do think we need to continue to be vocal about our expectation that before President-elect Trump takes office, he recamps. Um, He recamps his platform of curtailing civil rights, human rights, due process. Um, These, this is essential. I, I don't think I don't think just telling people to suck it up, essentially, is is appropriate. I think that you lose respect you know, you, you rightfully lose the people's respect for the office of the president and the process by which this country is governed when yeah. you do that.
2: Sure, sure. Um, yeah, well, I think that's a really important point, and I thank you for making it. Um, I've, I feel like we've covered a lot of really good stuff, um, so I kind of feel like this is a good place to sort of pause. I don't think this conversation's over. I would love to talk to you more about all this stuff in the future. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say at this point?
1: No, I think it's been great to talk to you. Eric. It's been really good I'm to so talk to you, that you as well. That you do so. this. Oh, I'm so happy that you
2: were able to to be part of this. I think, you know, one of the things that I put up on that list of 10 things every American should do when a new president is elected, number three is build community. Um, For those who haven't had a chance to read it, uh, number one is read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, know what it says, know about the rights of every human being on the planet, be prepared to stand up for your own rights, and be prepared to defend the rights of other humans. Number two, read the U.S. Constitution, know what it says about the rights of every American citizen, be prepared to defend your own rights, be prepared to defend the rights of other Americans. Uh, And then number three, build community. And I, I said, whenever government or other forces try to violate the rights of people they have less success when people know each other meet your neighbors if you don't already know them reach out to friends and family and reinforce networks of support so I think that in some small way the goal of this podcast is to build an online version of that and help people get exposed to new ideas, but also connect with people who think similarly. And, um, so I, I, thank you for sharing your thoughts with the world in all the ways that you do it. And I'm happy to help out with, you know, giving you a microphone that can reach a few other people.
1: Thanks, Eric. You um, do great work.
2: Yeah. Uh, as we finish up, uh, I wonder if there's a, uh, suppose we were to end with a song. What song would you like to end with?
1: You know, I think I was listening to some, um, I, it's not your style, though. Is that okay? No, that's
2: fine. It's hey, this is your.
1: Do you know Ardo Lindsay? Song. I don't. Simply, simply beautiful.
2: Okay. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah.
2: Thank you so all much, right. Soph. Um, I wish I were there to give you a big hug, but you know, e yeah, hug and all that, and we'll One meet day, up someday. One day you're
1: ever on the Coast, let me know, there's, a, there's a guest room right here
2: for you. Okay? Awesome. Thank you so much. I definitely right. will let you know.
1: And I really would love to meet your wife. I understand she's a complete badass.
2: Yeah. Oh, that—that's <sighs> the, the understatement of the century.
1: Well, tell her I—I look forward to the day.
2: Absolutely, and I look forward to meeting your husband and your children and all that. So okay. sounds great. Have a great rest all of the right. weekend, self.
1: So. All right. You too. Bye. Bye.
3: I do love your lack of all expression. Find it not at all distressing. freshman My life is really like